0: good afternoon everyone <clears throat> oh thank you <laughs> good good in the Chinese side we say um, we say brothers and sisters uh, uh, are you well and then yeah we say yes we're well yeah, you wish you well too um, <clears throat> let's start okay so my sermon's entitled holy living right so you know this is a I remember when I submitted this to, too, he was like, is that your title? Or is, is this, or you, like, what is, this, uh, is it? Is a tentative title? No, it's actually my title. Like, what, holy living, right? We think about it. What is it? You know, what, what, what is, what does scripture tell us about holy living? And um, I hope today's um, verses help us to get a better grasp of what it is. Because as I was preparing for it and I was thinking about it, it really shocked me. I was like, oh, this is, this is kind of interesting. So I hope it's interesting to you, too. <clears throat> When was the last time you tried to convince someone of something? Um, last week? Yesterday? Maybe this morning? You know, you're trying to. You know, we do this a lot in our daily lives, right? We try to convince our young children to eat their vegetables. We try to convince our partners. Sometimes adults eat vegetables, right? Like my wife tries to convince me to eat vegetables. She can't control me because she's not here. Um, <laughs> Sometimes we try to persuade our partners how to distribute income, right? And this is, this is a big problem. <laughs> um, some of us are uh, focused on writing, and so we try to influence um, our readers through our writing. And sometimes speaking, like what I'm trying to do here, hopefully it's successful. <laughs> but um, these and other countless activities that we do in our daily lives, they're examples of how we seek to approach a desired future. Right? We're trying to approach a desired future. And we do that by trying to modify the present. Right? We want to have children grow up healthier. We want to have family finances more balanced. We want to have our readers and our listeners informed and challenged. <clears throat> of course, we are not always right. And we are not always successful. I bring up this because, in essence, First Peter is such a thing. It is a letter to convince some people about some past and future events, and how these events should impact the, the reader's present way of living. That's, I think, its primary function. It's, it's the core of what its uh, purpose is. So as I'm reading through First Peter, you know, and I was looking it through this week, right, I, was, I noticed that there were basically two types of writing. I'm gonna call it A type and B type, and it's very, It's very mechanical, but um, A-type writing is, I say, it's primarily focused on questions about Jesus, right? Who is he? Where does he come from? What has he done? What will he do? What are the implications of his actions? And B-type writing, I say, it builds on top of A-type writing, and it extends into the daily lives of believers. (laughs) In 1 Peter, the author specifically appeals to the believers towards a very particular response in their daily living based on A-type writing. So a lot of this A-type writing, I found, is concentrating the first half of chapter 1. Like, for example, we have in verses uh, 3 and 4, we'll see this. In, God's, in God the Father's great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It is out of God's mercy and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ that believers go through the metaphor of new birth. And through this new birth, believers experience the world in a new way and form new connections and enter into new relationships right, with with God, with each other, with other believers, with the world, and also this new birth brings about uh, two new results, which is a living hope as well as an inheritance. We can clearly see that this is a typewriting because it's telling the audience about Jesus, about his death, about his resurrection, and about the implications of these things. Now, what I've done with what uh, what I've done with uh, the verses today, uh, sorry. Okay, Versus today is I've parsed it out a bit. i parsed it into A type and B type. So I've got uh, <clears throat> yellow is, is a B type writing, and the green is more A type writing. Of course, this is, you know, this is not very scientific. This is a very crude way of categorizing. What we'll see is that in today's verses, from 18 to 25, minus 22 is, is mostly, B, is mostly uh, A type writing. And and then the first few verses, 13 through 17, are primarily B-type writing. And this is indicated by the key word there, therefore. So earlier in the chapter, right, earlier in this chapter, it was talking about what Jesus, Jesus, who Jesus is, and what he's done. And then it comes with a therefore. Therefore indicates that now it's talking about what you as readers and hearers should do. As I've said, B-type writing is is a t- particular type of writing. It appeals to the audience towards a particular response. Namely, I find that the letter aims to convince groups of early Christ believers towards a particular type of living, which is which is holy living. But what, what is holy living? What exactly is it? This, is an imp- this was a really important question to the original audience, and it's really important to us today. I think today's verses will help us to flesh out what holy living is. And so today we'll primarily concentrate on verses 13 through 17. Here the author uses two metaphors. The first metaphor is the mind are alert and in some translations it says ready for action. This is a very interesting uh, phrase, a very particular phrase to that time because what he talked about was um, people who wore, wore those long robes, right? And for, because the robes were very long down to the ankle, they, they, it was really hard to move. It's like um, wearing long dresses today and trying to run a marathon. It's really hard because you're going know, to you get caught. Right? So what they will do, they will have to, they would have to turn up the, uh, the, the, the the take the bottom of the of the of the robe or the cloak or uh, the robe, and then the tunic, and then pull it up and then wrap it around their legs and then pull into tuck it into their uh, their belts. And so this was a a way of uh, freeing their legs, right, and freeing the lower body so that they could do strenuous and uh, also difficult tasks like going to war, uh, doing uh, labor, and things like that. This is the metaphor that the author draws upon, that that believers should be ready for action, should be ready for things to happen. The second metaphor that's mentioned here is fully sobered. Now, fully sober is, uh, is something that I think more, more or less we all understand. But I, I want to draw from a more ancient writing to help us to see the level of, I guess, what the opposite of sober is, right? What the opposite of fully sober is. So, um, not, a, not a great painting, but look at the painting and I will read the, read the uh, writing. So, this is written by Clement of Alexandria. And he was making a comment on drinking in his, in his time. He says this. But the miserable wretches who expel temperance from conviviality I don't know <laughs> think excess in drinking to be the happiest life. And their life is nothing but revel, debauchery, baths, excess, urinals, idleness, drink. You may see some of them half drunk staggering with crowns around their necks like wine jars vomiting drinks on one another in the place of good fellowship in the name of good fellowship sorry and others full the effects of their debauch dirty (laughs) pale in the face livid and still above yesterday's bout pouring yet another bout to last till the next morning it is well my friends it is well to make our acquaintance with this picture at the greatest possible distance from it, and to frame ourselves to what is better, dreading lest we also become a skept- spectacle and laughingstock to others. Wow, that kind of parting, right? <laughs> I mean, that's so vivid. Dr- vomiting to into the drinks of other people. I mean, this is this is this is next level, right? I don't know if anyone has gotten this drunk. Um, I personally have not. Um, Uh, I'm happy to say that. Um, The closest equivalent of this kind of of, uh, imagery I can think of would be um, like a, maybe like a uh, a alcohol party at a fraternity or sorority in an American university. I don't know if there's such a thing in the UK, but uh, in America there are these uh, groups of people, um, uh, they have these parties, very wild parties, and, uh, but, but honestly, I can't confirm it tonight because I have not been to such a party, so I, I wouldn't be able to tell you what it's really like. We can just kind of uh, guess from the movies, right? But what, what we can be certain is we can imagine the level of, like, the loss of control, right, of body and mind that comes from excess drinking. And so combined together, these two kind of paint an image, right, of being alert, fully alert and also fully sober towards life. This I think is the, the, the cornerstone or the foundation of holy living and what's about to come uh, next. The next part we'll see is the author uh, talking about the behaviors and the attitudes of these believers do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. What kind of evil desires might the author be talking about? I, I really, I really wondered this. You know, I thought about what kind of evil desires was he talking about? And I thought about refer- looking for um, this, this idea in ancient literature and all, and also um, just thinking about it, right? But but I think the best way to approach this is to just look at the letter itself. The letter gives a lot of clues about what kind of evil is being mentioned here. So from the other p- parts of the letter, I compiled a list. Uh, this is not a, a complete list. You maybe will find more than this, but this is a list from uh, the other chapters: malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. Returning evil for evil, insult for insult, debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, idolatry. It's a quite a big list of things, right? And you know, as I look at this list right now, I reflect in in myself, and I have been guilty of these um, quite frequently. Um, one thing I uh, I don't think I've shared this before, but I, I like to play video games. I'm very competitive in video games. I'm like crazy competitive. Like a <laughs> game I used to play, <laughs> um, it, it's an online competitive uh, tank simulation game. And I'm, I'm in the top two percentiles. So like I'm really good, like crazy good. And I don't play that much either. I, I have, you know, I have um, on average less games than most of the players. But because I'm top top second percentile, on average, in a full game of 15 versus 15, I'm probably one of the best players. And then I just get so mad when I see other players with more experience than me perform significantly worse than me, causing us to lose, and I rage, right? And I get really mad and I insult these people sometimes. (laughs) I message them afterwards and I insult them. I'm like, how can you be so bad You played so much more than me? I don't know what you doing. Where's your mind? Where's your brain, right? Sometimes people insult me. They'll be like, oh, you, you, you were terrible, you know, and I will insult them back. So <laughs> returning evil for evil. <laughs> you know, just being a terrible, terrible person, I, I, I do it. <laughs> it's me. <laughs> um, it's terrible. But <laughs> what we see is that we see a list here of... Evil desires that include ill will towards other people, right? And, and discontentment and resentment of other people. And in turn, these things within us, they cause us to do evil actions. And it's a terrible thing, according to First Peter here. Instead, so we'll keep that in the back burner, okay, this list. Instead, what, what the author calls us towards is towards holiness towards believers are called to be holy because God is holy. This is one of his primary reasonings. We have now come to the crux of the letter, I believe, as well as the main main point of my sermon today, which is what is this holiness, right? What is this holiness? And again, we can go to other texts and other places to look for it, but I'm going to stick with the text today, 1 Peter. What does 1 Peter tell us about holiness? Again, a huge list, a huge list. It surprised me, but here's just some of it. Chapter 2 Holiness demands that we respect others, we love fellow believers, we fear God, we submit to authority. I think that last one is pretty shocking to a lot of people. Chapter 3 It's about wives submitting and winning over unbelieving husbands. About husbands honoring and caring for their wives. It's about living in harmony with sympathy, affection, and compassion towards others. Chapter 4. It means showing hospitality to fellow believers and serving them with your gifts. This is a call to everyone. And in chapter 5. The proper use of authority not to view authority simply as a duty to be done, not for personal profit, not being condescending, but being a good role model and being directed by God in the use of that authority. And it also manifests itself as younger believers submitting to elder believers and all believers being humble in their attitude towards each other and towards life. As I was going through this list and compiling what holy living looked like according to 1 Peter, what surprised me the most was that it seems to be very little about individualistic moral and ethical qualities, but rather mostly centers on relational and communal qualities, right? The type of living here is not is pic- the type of living here pictured is not one of, like, a collection of individual silos of people that live upright, righteous, moral lives. This is not what it's picturing. Rather, what it points to is a community in which its members respect each other, take care of each other, and serve and help each other. This is what, what we see here. It's not that individualist, here's, and I think here's a really good point as I was thinking about this. It's not that individualistic qualities are not important. They are important because a functioning and working community cannot have its members with pervasive and very deep sense of envy and hatred and jealousy, right? That's not a healthy community because its members are not healthy. Its members must be healthy but the author goes beyond its members being healthy. It goes beyond just these negative qualities. It says that to avoid these negative qualities is not enough for holy living. Holy living, as verse 22 summarizes, requires believers to love one another deeply from the heart, very deeply from the heart. To go beyond simply being okay with one, one another's presence and truly entering a care for each other in real and direct ways. I think that's what this picture paints. I thought about a really good analogy on my way walking through here. It's like a person, right, a body. A body can be very healthy, can have no disease, can, have perf- can be in perfect condition Yet, if it is socially isolated, if it has no social engagements with other people, how can it can it be healthy? There, I'm sure we can find um, stories and uh, anecdotes and even studies to sh- to demonstrate that it's being socially healthy is a really important part of being healthy. Likewise, to to live holy is not simply about living a an individually moral and ethical way, but to live in community with people who you care about and they care about you. And this makes sense, right? Because we're not perfect people. We make mistakes. We need people to help us, and we need to help other people when they need, when they need our help too. This makes perfect sense. Together, uh, we can help each other. And so I think that there's a tendency in the church and I don't know if it's true for every church, but this is this is speaking out of gut, right? My gut feeling, which is that we may have we may have sacrificed social health healthiness for an over concern in personal individualistic moral healthiness. We may have just put up too much focus on being individually ethical and moral and holy, rather than looking at the relational holiness that is. So that is basically the point of this letter, right? This is, this, is a, this is an obvious, overwhelming theme. One of the challenges I really saw in applying this text to our life today is that the early believers organized their Christian communities quite differently from how we organize it. In those days, it was very common for believers to meet on a regular basis, sometimes even living together. Um, So for them, the text, I imagine would be quite an intensely intimate call. And you can imagine, they hear the call to love each other deeply, right? They would hear this and they would immediately think about how to put it into practice because they're living with the believers that they're called to love. To the contrary, Christians today we don't we don't uh, live together. We don't, as a church, we don't live together. Some communities do live in very close, tight, uh, tight uh, villages and stuff, but we we in the West actually don't we don't live together, right? Instead, what we do is we meet each other on Sundays and perhaps another day of the week. And as a result, I think this call to to live uh, a whole uh, holy in community is interpreted a little bit differently. Let me, give you, let me give you a couple examples. For example, at church we can freely choose, more freely choose who we want to associate with, who we talk to, who we spend our time with, right? And sometimes we don't have a choice. Sometimes just time limitations. We can only talk to a few people, right? We can only take care of a few people. So it's very natural for us to form like little cliques or little groups or little conversation partners. But what has this done? In effect, this has forced us to choose who to love, and, 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 and as an extension, we we develop a certain foreignness to other members of the church. The other example I thought of is that because we meet um, just for a few hours of the week, it's very easy for us to put up a pretense in church, um, and the pretense itself. I don't want to comment on, but relative to today's kind of message, is that if we put up a pretense, how can people truly get to know us? And if they, how, if they can't truly get to know us, how can they truly love us and serve us? This is a problem, I think, this is a problem. Of course, the differences between then and now, I think, are not so drastic that the text has no relevance to us today. I believe it has relevance. But we must think we must think about how the text applies to our various contexts. For example, in our marriages, in our families, in our place of work, in our friendship, in the mornings when we pick up coffee. How does how does a relational and communal lens help us towards a holy living? Specifically, How can we apply that better way of living that was initiated and constantly renewed through our encounters with God into these various areas of living? You know, I'm not here to respond to that question. I don't think I can because I think it's for each of us to think about and to, to meditate on. But I think the general shape has been provided for us, a very general shape of holy living. And that holy living seems to be one of respect, submission, humility, service, harmony, compassion, and other great qualities. And no matter what station you are in life, I think it's important to think about these. Sometimes we need to help each other um, with problems in life. Um, with using these, these great tools that have been taught us and given to us and reminded of us, reminded to us. And so today I think I want to highlight the relational and the communal aspect importance of holy living. We can move out of the myopic, looking at our, my personal life, is it clean, is it holy? and look beyond that and see how we can help each other to become holy in a community. With that renewed sense of importance of relational and communal quality in holy living, let us pray. Father, we thank you for First Peter, such a great, beautiful letter, and the many things that it teaches us about what it means to be a Christian in our lives today. Lord, we pray that you would give each of us what we need to live in a holy, authentic way that reflects not only the way you've made us, but also the fact that we live in communities and that we are all made in your image and we all have the capacity to become holy like you. We thank you, Lord. Bless the rest of us, uh, rest of our time here at church, and also bless those who are about to engage into work and life in the coming week. We thank you. Have mercy on us. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.